Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Scott. And I'm Dr. Shiloh. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. And today's episode is on the vintage case of Burma and Thomas White. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We have a couple of things to announce before we jump into this episode. We would love for all of you to please join us, if you can, on Saturday, July 22nd at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for our 50th, get it again, 50th live stream. We can't believe we have just racked up this many live streams, this many episodes. It's crazy. Since COVID, we started like during what, May? Yeah. Yeah. COVID benefited us in that way. Although it was a horrible pandemic. (laughs) Um, We're tossing around a couple of ideas, like making it an off the cuff sort of happy hour where we answer listener questions in real time, as well as maybe some prep, maybe have one of our Patreon members moderate the questions that we've tossed that around a little bit. I'm not saying that there will be cocktails involved, but I'm also (laughs) not saying that there will not be cocktails involved. So join us. Happy hour. I mean, I guess well, that could be appetizers. Any hour with you is happy for me. Oh, there that's you so go. nice. Hey, I'm... why don't you recap our most recent episode? Yeah. What a surprise that we had the reactions and input and feedback. Oh my gosh. We did. Yes. <laughs> so this was going postal. It was really about workplace violence, but this term going postal sort of kicked it off and has really become synonymous with flying off the handle or some sort of anger management issue, especially at work. And we dove into this and brought you the real story because the origins are much more grim. And we ended up covering the first such case of violence at the hands of a U.S. postal worker from the 1980s. We then discuss a long history of increasing work pressures, toxic work sites, and how pushing work to the edge can have dire consequences. And then we covered things that came of that, like government and workplace safety responses and things that have been put into place since then. But yeah, just the most overwhelming response from people we know that are postal carriers or listeners, former postal carriers, mental health professionals who have treated postal carriers, like you name it, they came out of the right? woodwork. Yeah. And, and the most sort of immediate responses too, like sometimes we'll get it a co- mm-hmm. Like a couple of months later, like, hey, I'm just catching up at episodes. And what was fascinating was there were a handful that were, you absolutely cannot use my name. Right. But I right. did want to reach out to you for talking about this. And the one that got me the most was the one that we got the most recently that said mm-hmm. it actually was as bad as you described. And in many cases, it was a lot worse, which yeah. is kind of frightening to think about. So, folks, if you get a chance, please go back and listen to it. It's a It was a, a major turning point for regulations regarding regarding the workplace in America. So mm-hmm. good episode. Yeah, but I'm so happy. It's my favorite time of the month now. It's vintage case time. Yay. Well, you picked this one and the title alone is absolutely enticing and not at all what I expected. I was not familiar with this case. Mm-hmm. I did not know that in 1933, Los Angeles had their own Bonnie and Clyde right here in Southern California. You guys, maybe you'll remember back in episode 74. I know that's a very long time ago. We reviewed spree killing couples, and we're certainly going to see if the research applies to this vintage case involving Burma and her husband, Thomas White, although they attempted murder, but their victims fortunately survived. They were involved in a series of spree crimes, certainly. Right. And we want to give you a trigger warning that there is gun violence and there's also a couple of incidents of graphic wound description. Absolutely. So our culture has a fascination with the women who not only commit crimes, but also those that are seen as the hangers on or just along for the ride with their male partners in crime. And Julia Bricklin, historian and author of the book, Blonde Rattlesnake, Burma Adams, Tom White, and the 1933 crime spree that terrorized Los Angeles made a fascinating and in-depth exploration of our subjects for today's episode. And in her interviews, she asserts that the phenomenon of this fixation really emerged in 1933 through really the prosecution efforts of Los Angeles District Attorney Burren Fitz and his obsession, seemingly obsession, with the woman at the center of our story today, Burma Adams 
white. Yes, as we covered way back in episode 74, there were several significant terms that emerged around this time. So let's review those real quick. And this one really seems very vintage in itself. The term public enemy, it was first widely used in the United States around this time to describe individuals whose criminal activities were seen as both criminal and significantly damaging to what was considered to be the fabric of society. It wasn't a new term, but one that was originally used through the last couple of hundred years to describe various types of alleged criminal perpetrators, such as Vikings, pirates, highwaymen, bandits, robbers, mobsters, and similar outlaws. And then the new term that was coined at this time was spree killers. Yes. Although now a fairly, I would say obsolete term, especially to professionals, criminologists, right. just because we started getting way too many terms. And then there was a symposium back in the early 2000s where all these meetings of the mind happened really to look at serial killers, but they started parsing out some of these other terms and going like, which ones do we really need? However, a spree killing is when someone commits at least three murders in different places with a small amount of time in between. And it usually starts with a major event that triggers their urge to kill. And that event keeps driving them to commit these crimes. And the victims could be chosen specifically, targeted, or just purely random people. And sometimes the identity of the killer is known at the time of the investigation and as the killings are continued. But not always. Sometimes it's a mystery and law enforcement's really trying to figure that out as they're trying to see where they will strike next. And there's some really fascinating discussions on the definition of these terms by the FBI in our show notes. So we will link that. So please check those out. Always, you can check out our reference resources page on our website for each and every episode because there's just too much to actually put in the show notes of the actual what goes in the description on your podcatcher. But we're also going to talk a little more about this in our final discussion at the end today. But with that, let's meet our berserk betrothed couple. All right. So by 1933, Thomas White at age 28 was already an ex-con. He was born into a military family in 1897 in New York City with the family consistently moving from town to town because of his father's military responsibilities. And Thomas White is reported to have experienced really significant losses of his mother and sister who died when he was very young. That really kind of acted as a turning point for him with behavioral issues. He started getting into trouble, which then landed him in a reform school in college. Colorado, although that did not last long. So as an adult still in Colorado, Thomas began committing robberies. And although he made the move to Los Angeles to be closer to his father and his surviving sister, his criminal behaviors didn't stop when he crossed the California line. He did eventually end up at San Quentin State Prison due to his crimes, but his violent streak seems to have sort of been lit like a match at this time. He racked up an impressive list of prison infractions by getting in multiple serious altercations. And in one fight with another inmate, it resulted in him getting his eye gouged out. In his youthful bravado and violence, he made a lot of enemies at San Quentin, which is saying a lot for that time, really saying a lot. But now with his diminished eyesight, he was considered at risk and he was transferred to Folsom Prison until his release in April 1933. So then he ends up back in Southern California, right in the middle of Los Angeles. Yes. And then we have Burma Adams, who was only 19 years old by the time her path crossed with Thomas's. So let's back up a little bit. She was born in January of 1914 in Ohio. And at some point, her family moved to Orange County here in Southern California. And at the age of 14, she was riding her bike and was hit by a car and underwent brain surgery for this. Oof, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> I know, like 1928 brain surgery. Oof. So yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine one, how bad her injury was that she right. needed the brain surgery and then to undergo such a traumatic medical operation like that had to be just horrific back then. However, she stayed in public school system. She was a former Santa Ana high school student turned hairdresser by the time she was a young adult. Cue the beauty school dropout music. But she went up to San Francisco for a little bit to follow her dreams in hairdressing and then ended up returning to Southern California to be near her family. Family. So her younger sister was reportedly very ill and the family needed help with income due to these piling medical bills. So they 
from what I understand, are still in the Orange County area, but she ends up moving to the MacArthur Park area in Los Angeles. She moved in with a roommate and it's, you know, typing this out several times, the name Burma, I was like, what, how did this like girl from Ohio (laughs) end up with this beautiful name, but odd name for the time. And it translates from Sanskrit as golden songbird. And Burma certainly cut an impressive figure with her stunning photogenic features with her styled platinum blonde hair and her enormous hypnotic blue eyes. So she was quite a looker. And, you know, you just think of this beauty coming to LA and starting her career here as a hairdresser. And then what I like to think was a hot, sultry summer night in Los Angeles. She and Thomas meet at Sebastian's Cotton Club in Culver City, which was located at the intersections of Washington Boulevard and National Street. And it was the leading and most popular jazz club in the greater Los Angeles area. And as the story goes, she fell instantly in love with the one-eyed Thomas. And about a month after they met, they got hitched. So it must have been love at first sight. Seriously. And while it was thought that their crime spree would inevitably emerge from their marriage, it was later confirmed that they had committed several of their crimes prior to the ceremony. It does seem that as a money... It does seem that as a honeymoon celebration, they went on to commit seven robberies in one night within the first week of their connubial bliss. Was your honeymoon that adventurous? Mine certainly was not. No, I behaved myself pretty well on the cruise ship in the Bahamas. (laughs) So the newly married couple enjoyed their matrimonial mayhem to say, I Uh, guess. Wait, okay. So how many of these alliterations have you put in here for us? We have- There's only three, two more. There's only two more. Berserk betrothed, matrimonial (laughs) Matrimonial mayhem. mayhem. All right, okay. I have one more. (laughs) So on their honeymoon, they brandished their guns and they robbed around 20 people in the following eight week crime. So they celebrated their honeymoon by committing crimes and they robbed about 20 people in the following eight week crime spree in Los Angeles. They held up a number of places, including grocery stores, robbing people at gunpoint, stealing carts. And they did develop a sort of regular modus operandi, I guess you would say. And they would drive their car around the city at night. And then when they were stopped at a traffic light next to another car, they would hold up the victims at gunpoint that were in that car, get all their belongings and then drive off. And all the victims were alleged to have commented not only on the beauty of the blonde getaway driver, but also that she laughed at their fear, Mm. cackling hysterically even when bullets were fired. Now, few if any of the victims were able to describe the man holding the firearm. I guess when you have a platinum blonde, blue-eyed, gorgeous woman maniacally laughing at the Mm -hmm. steering wheel, maybe that's going to grab your attention. But when LAPD was seeking them out, Thomas became known as the Rattlesnake Bandit, and Burma's platinum blonde hair inspired the nickname the Blonde Rattlesnake. So cackling is a particularly descriptive term that makes me think, while not minimizing her roles in these crimes, but perhaps the media was kind of playing up the image of her as this killer. I mean, I almost see like Cruella DeVille behind the wheel and yeah. then this cackling, yeah. like a, you know, a beautiful, glamorous Cruella DeVille. So while in this section you shared, she's described as madly laughing. She's actually later in some other descriptions characterized as almost like an ice queen in her responses to the victims and the crimes and the death that follows. So I don't know. I mean, there's a bit of a contradiction there. Like they can't quite figure out which script they want to write. For I this completely couple. agree. And there's more stuff that emerges in this narrative that completely backs up what you're saying. And going back to Bricklin's book, Burma's association with Tom led to the shooting of a beloved elementary school teacher and the poor guy who happened to be really in the wrong place at the wrong time, a man named Crombie Allen. He was a retired publishing executive and he was actually teaching Cora Withington, the elementary school teacher, how to drive his new car. He had recently acquired this new car in a sale. So they were stopped at a traffic light and they were completely surprised by Thomas, who jumped out of the car after pulling up right next to them, the car driven by Burma. He wildly brandished his pistol in the faces of Cora and Crombie. He pointed the weapon at Cora's head and he shouted, shell out, sweetheart. And despite Cora and Crombie scrambling to hand over their money, their belongings, our trigger-happy Tom lost his patience and shot directly at Cora. The bullet pierced Cora's eye in an angle that tore a path through her head, ripped a wound into Crombie's neck, 
neck, but not into Krami's neck before hitting the other eye, leaving her completely blind. Oh my God. How weird is that too, that Thomas lost an eye and then he shoots this woman that ends up taking her eye. Oh, very so, strange. Yeah. So both Cora and Crombie miraculously survived their injuries, although Cora was permanently blinded. And Crombie was savvy enough to have memorized the license plate of the getaway car driven by Burma. Then LAPD chief James Davis, aka Two Gun Davis, was known to have a significant lack of respect for the Fourth Amendment, I guess we should say. In his view, constitutional rights were of no benefit to anybody but crooks and criminals. So despite his extreme views and the controversial slash very corrupt figure that he's known to be in LA history, he was, you know, when it came to serious crimes like this, a pretty competent leader and strategist. He immediately instituted a city blockade in an attempt to trap the sweetheart savages. (laughs) There you go. Last one. (laughs) He generated a wide net of random stops and searches of both pedestrians and vehicles, focusing primarily on the dark early hours of the morning, when according to Davis, quote, the more callous criminals are abroad. So I looked through a lot of the research to figure out who tipped off the police. And I'm not able to find that, which is so if anybody Mm -hmm. out there listening, and we know that our friends over at LA Meekly and several other historical podcasts have done deep dives into this as well. I am fascinated to find out who tipped off the cops to where they were. Very interesting. So anyway, LAPD did receive information on a possible address for them. I was going to call them the betrothed bandits. It's fine at this point. Sorry, it's just going to keep on going. (laughs) But they positioned a stakeout in that area and police were able to locate the duo's car in a parking lot right next to what would have then been a towering brick apartment building at 236 South Coronado Street. Fun fact, the building is still there. It's in excellent shape. It's a really cool building from the 30s brick, real impressive staircase walking up the front. It's very cool. But an officer surreptitiously disguised in a mechanics uniform staked out the vehicle and he was able to surveil Burma entering the vehicle, driving it into a garage, and then he observed White held the door open for her. So as we've described in previous episodes, the 1930s ushered in a really strange symbiotic and somewhat parasitic relationship between the media and law enforcement. And it's hard to kind of wrap our minds around this Mm -hmm. now because there's so much attempted control of media at crime sites. But back then on a regular basis, the news was actually alerted to stakeouts and potential arrests. So cameras could be there to catch all of the gory glory with the law enforcement administrators believing that it was really good publicity for the public to show all of this and show them at work you know, attending to the criminals in the society. Yeah, it seems like they're everywhere. They're at crime scenes, they're at stakeouts, they were at perp walks. So clearly there's a lot of communication going back and forth. Maybe that was where the tip-off came from. Could be, yeah, could be. So with the location confirmed, two other officers entered the hallway of the apartment and confronted Thomas White in the wide hallway reception area. Tom, as we know, a bit of an impulsive criminal, made the fatal mistake of attempting to shoot it out rather than surrender. Or maybe he just wanted to go out in a blaze of glory. Either way, White died after taking two bullets through the heart. And as White dropped to the floor dead from the hail of bullets, Burma was on the other floor in the midst of crawling out a window. It's still not clear whether she was attempting to escape or attempting to perhaps end her life, but the police were able to physically restrain her before she could fully get out of the window, and she was promptly escorted to jail. With later accounts describing her as icy and emotionless when she basically, as newspapers described it, casually stepped over Thomas's body lying in the hallway with zero reaction on her face. Interesting. So both of White's surviving victims identified him at the morgue as the perpetrator that had robbed and shot them. That's another thing that I don't think that happens today. I don't think Um... you like take the victims of a crime to the morgue and show them the body. Hey, is this the person that shot at you? That's wow. (laughs) Yeah. I guess they didn't have Polaroids to do really quick photos, but still. Although, you know, arrested and in custody, Burma was allowed to be present at the funeral, which is another mind-boggling thing. I guess in order to have one last view of her husband's body, and maybe it was because the police wanted to see how she would react, but Mm. most likely it was because the newspapers were certainly going to be there and they were going to be able to feed a lot of their readership by photos of this, you know, murderous woman, this criminal siren being at the cause 
coffin of her dead husband. There were photos of her looming over the casket, clutching a hanky in one hand close to her chest. And then this Herald, the LA Herald wrote of the scene, she haughtily walked into the morgue and posed with icy indifference, like an actress going into a sob scene. She managed to sniffle a bit. Hmm. <laughs> so as we move towards the trial, D.A. Byrne Fitz was a native of Texas, a decorated World War I hero with aspirations of being elected governor of California. So he was really trying to make a name for himself. We've heard of him in other cases that we've covered. And he had become bored with his tenure of lieutenant governor and ended up returning to LA to successfully pursue the job of the district attorney. So he gains this position back and stated that he would essentially cleanse Los Angeles of its quote unquote gang element, which I feel like we've heard over the decades a lot here in LA. <laughs> Just over and over again. Yeah, I'm going to be the one to come in and fix it, right? Yeah. So Fitz used Burma's case as a chance to glorify himself as sort of this gatekeeper of Los Angeles's public morals and civic life. He assigned his right-hand man and arguably his most intimidating deputy district attorney, George, quote unquote, the hangman, Stallman, to prosecute the case. So the three of them, we got three now, Fitz, Stallman, and Two-Gun Davis, were really focused on making an example out of Burma. And they were just stating that they were going to pull from Burma the debt that was owed to society that white her husband and the only gunman in all the crimes was not alive to pay Ooh. so this is the part where the story does start to kind of gel and get very interesting because she was not a trigger puller right she may have laughed she may not have laughed but she was the getaway car driver right there's no evidence at all and they didn't even try and show any evidence that she pulled the trigger or caused anyone's death but since she's the only one that's alive and yeah. these three guys need a patsy not minimizing the role that she plays in this but it is very interesting that at this point in time these three guys are all kind of looking towards where their future careers are going to be going mm -hmm. and they're going to tie their coattails onto this particular incident i think Think. Yeah, it seems very like staged and like, here's our agenda and here's how, you know, we're almost going to make her pay for the sins of two people to try and get the morals of Los Angeles back in place instead of just the cut and dried, like, hey, the laws on the books say that, you know, if you're an accessory or you participate in the crime and someone dies, you are just as culpable as the other person like that. Okay, like we know that. <laughs> Let's wrap our head around it. But also... You know, they're they're really piling this on. So according to a Los Angeles Evening Post article from September 9th, 1933, Burma's attorney, Donald McKay, stated that the case was not airtight against his client, and he was looking forward to cross-examining witnesses to poke holes in the case. He also denied that she was an addict, which had been reported in the early days after her arrest. He labeled the public's overzealous interest as hysteria. The paper noted that 3,000 people gathered outside the LAPD Central Division Police Station, where the police held an in-person lineup with Burma and nine other blonde women so the victims could attempt to identify her. So that was obviously earlier before the right. trial, but he's noting this to say, like, this has been hysteria from the beginning, and a lot of it, like we just said, is of the police doing. Essentially, Burma's defense was that she acted under duress of the more criminally savvy Thomas, who had dazzled her, swept her off her feet, and then forced her to participate in the robberies as the driver with her not knowing that he would ever shoot anyone. And when the case went to the jury, the judge gave the following instructions. On the three counts of assault with a deadly weapon with intent to commit murder, the defendant may be found guilty of either assault with a deadly weapon with the intent to commit murder or of assault with a deadly weapon. If a person commits a crime under the threat or menaces, he or she is incapable of committing a crime. It must be shown that this crime must have done upon the threat that their life was in danger and upon the actual belief that there was such danger. Additionally, the judge gave similar instructions on the robbery count, stating that she could have been found guilty or not guilty of robbery in the first degree. Her defense attorney's argument was as follows. When you start to fix the blame in this case, do not forget to apportion society its share. It was our society, our state, that paroled Tom White from Folsom Prison to lead and force this girl into the crimes that bring her before you. Tom White was a known criminal, was set free from prison, and there began the events which led to this tragic case. So interesting. That's a great opening statement. Deputy District Attorney Stallman added, well, if you have any sympathy in this case, give it to 
core of Whittington. When you leave this courtroom to enjoy the beauty of the state and city, remember there's one person who can never again enjoy them because of a bandit's bullet which tore out her eye. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Well, touche. No, <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that's a good one. It's a good snapback. So as we had mentioned before, Burma was reported over and over again to have had an icy demeanor throughout her trial. And truth be told, there are several photos of her in the courtroom looking stunning, but also somewhat, I don't know, blank. Her perceived lack of remorse and abrasive demeanor did not make a good impression on the members of the court. And I mean, gosh, you and I have talked so much ad nauseum right. about presentation in the court courts. And, you know, especially back then, it's just what a circus this sounded like. But this, as well as the prosecution's case, worked against her because the 19-year-old widow received a guilty conviction on 11 felony counts. So Judge Balron, the sitting judge at Burma's sentencing, stated that she had been, quote, an accomplice in the heartless and wanton shooting of Miss Withington and Crombie Allen. And her actions were, quote, utterly abandoned and ruthless she is despite her years. So he ends up sentencing her to a 30-year prison term, stating that the number of young people who could commit serious crimes is appalling. And it is now an exception to have before the court a person of mature years charged with robbery, burglary, and automobile theft. Hmm. So he's like, we should really have more mature people in the court facing these charges. Yeah. Such a weird statement. There's too, there's too many kids. We're going to have to, we need the old, we need the old G yeah. criminals coming back to court. Um, so yeah. So he went on to say that these and similar crimes are committed for the most part by mere youths and of recent years, girls and young women are, quote, swelling the ranks. So all these men are just, you know, they have to right all these wrongs. Yeah, with one they're making a swoop. lot of, yeah, I don't think the stats really support that either, but. You know, that he was making a point, I guess. It is interesting, though, because for a case that's completely eclipsed by Bonnie and Clyde that occurs shortly after, this particular case, for better or worse, changed a lot of procedures in L.A. And it also benefited a lot of people and agencies, I guess. I mean, they all benefit from this fire that was lit by Burma's legal proceedings. The officers that were involved in her arrest and White's death, by the way, were awarded certificates and promotions. And then Los Angeles as a city obtained a lot of financial support for a, what was new to them, a felon registration program. These felon registration programs existed at other places around the country, but not in LA at that time, because it cost a lot of money. So yeah. they got funding for that. And then the LA County Sheriff's Department also obtained significant amounts of funding to fully install radio communications in all the squad cars. So wow. that's a big deal too, for the technology at that time to suddenly step up to that level. So Burma's intentionally tarnished background was used to benefit political careers and line pockets. So while her case may not have gotten this national recognition, like we said, look for Bonnie and Clyde, the story did have legs and it stayed in the Southern California narrative media with a lot of questions and a lot of influence regarding police work and the legal system. Yeah. So there was a much questioning of how a quote unquote nice girl from a nice home could fall so far. And Burma's teachers from high school described her as not only a beauty, but actually a brilliant student until, again, the accident when she was 14 years old, when she was hit by the vehicle. So without the benefit of a true psychological understanding of how Burma, quote unquote, fell so far, the media had its heyday alleging that she was an impertinent thrill seeker, with one LA Times article describing her as the most dangerous type of criminal in a profile that included Bonnie Parker and Evelyn Frechette, who was the girlfriend of John Dillinger. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's kind of a leap. Again, not to fully minimize any kind of criminal activity, but you're the getaway driver and you're saying that it's Bonnie Parker. I mean, that's a whole different level, right? I understand like the inability to not compare them to each other, but... Also, I don't know. I mean, it's it, just that you and I know there's such individual factors with each of these people and the level of violence that they actually engaged in. If you just look at it for a moment, the fact that there are only three, it's like it's such a small sample to then start, you know, making True. these sort of generalizations about, I guess. So there was the allegations that she was under the influence of substances, presumably cocaine or morphine or both, especially at the scene of the final shooting, as well as during the entire 
sort of crime binge, but that was really never substantiated. It wasn't substantiated, but something did shift very interestingly as, you know, the media went looking for the next big thrill, or maybe as Bonnie and Clyde came into the picture, there were some reporters that continued to look at this case and, and peel apart the layers, which is it's pretty significant for someone to actually take the time. So as the focus shifted away a little bit, really more reasonable tones started to emerge from the press. And then as they took deeper dives into her background, you know, they started like looking at her with more depth and possibly more nuance than she had previously been allowed. Yeah. A reporter later observed that following her arrest, that she did not respond in the police interviews to standard strong arm methods and that the types of intimidation that usually succeeded on an underworld type of girl didn't <laughs> work on her. Hmm. Which I found very interesting because maybe that's just not who she was like, yeah, okay, I did it. I was like driving the car, but yeah. they were trying to, you know, squeeze all this other stuff out of her. Well, uh, and I know we're going to talk about head trauma and possible brain damage later, but you know, you wonder if some of those, some of that connectivity to even just emotion was damaged her it understanding. I mean, she could have been delayed in some ways, cognitively and developmentally. So we just, we don't know, but here, you know, you're, everyone's trying to grasp at straws with just stuff we don't know about back then, neuropsychology and, and things of that nature. And then, you know, after kind of what you're talking about, there came the slow recognition that Burba may have not been the typical bandit's mall, but instead, as quoted, a normal girl, a baker's daughter who had fallen in with a desperate criminal. And it finally emerged that while she had been portrayed as a cackling, evil and murderous rattlesnake, the real story was that she worked multiple jobs to support her parents and her sister's chronic and significant medical conditions. So they're giving her a little bit more empathy in this case, but yeah, it's just super interesting to look in hindsight and see, I, I think to see how the narrative evolved, at least, you know, we don't see that very often at all. Yeah. Because if you're going to portray somebody as like this murderous psychopath or spree criminal, that's not the type of person that, you know, strikes out on their own to be a successful hairdresser and then realizes like, oh, my family needs me. I need mm -hmm. to go back to Southern yeah. California and help out. But then we also don't know. I mean, you bring up something interesting. If maybe at that time she actually was hitting some of these challenges that can emerge from having a significant head injury. Maybe she moved out on her own, realized I can't make it on my own Maybe, in, yeah. in another big city. But we'll, those are things, unfortunately, again, that'll be lost to history. But we do have some narrative that does focus on historical fact about where she went after the trial. She began serving her 30-year sentence at San Quentin State Prison in Northern California. But ultimately, she was transferred to the women's prison at Tehachapi, which is just a few hours north of Los Angeles. And while there, she was in the company of several other infamous, young, attractive criminals. She was interviewed by the Herald Express reporter Agnes Aggie Underwood and under Wood described her as slightly defiant, cynical, and egotistical, which I think is a very interesting choice of words. I mean, nothing mm -hmm. that really is that unusual or out of the scope of what is needed for survival as an inmate in state prison, but maybe a few years in Tehachapi either had mellowed her or hardened her. I'm not really sure. So like we said before, Burma was now in the company of some very notorious inmates, child murderer Erna Janishek, as well as serial killer Louise Pete, and of course, course, the very infamous Tiger Woman, Clara Phillips, both of whom we've covered in our vintage episodes. Yeah. So it really was like the real life Chicago. <laughs> The yeah. play Chicago. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I bet Aggie Underwood had a field day going up and interviewing all these women. She was such a tremendous reporter here in Los Angeles. But apparently during her time in prison, Burba penned an open letter to young girls called Crime Never Pays, which I could not find. <laughs> I really, really wanted to and see what it said. However, I did locate a newspaper article from 1935 titled Burma White, Hardened Girl Bandit turned to poetry in prison cell. And you bet it had one of her poems in there. Oh, cool. Yeah. So she would publish in the prison literary magazine called The Bulletin. And I'm going to read you her poem, which is, I, I don't know if you know how much I despise poetry. I don't know if we've ever oh, had that conversation, that. <laughs> but I'm going to give it a go. Here it is. I looked and saw a fairy perched upon your shoulder beckoning to me entranced. All motion from my body fled. A fawn might have then passed by. Unafraid, 
or danced on cool dew-covered lawn. Ten tiny elves. Such was the silence that engulfed us both. Again, the fairy waved to moonlit shelves. Raised high a tiny hand in fairy oath. Proclaiming beauty wild and sweet and rare. Alluring to join the revelry. Yet I still lingered, hesitant to bear. My weeping heart for glancing sword to see. A jovial little brownie tiptoed to my side and whispered, Walk with her. Forgive. It is true that only the fearless live. I raised my eyes to yours and found a change wrought in their depths. Wistful longing, mutely called. The brownie danced around me gleefully, singing, dancing, tugging at my hand. And then I knew you were the answer to my silent quest. Perhaps you came to me. It may be true. I sped to you. I knew that we were blessed. The brownie, the fairy, and you and I walking and sang neath the moonlit sky. Loved and laughed and scorned to die, you, the fairy, the brownie, and I. Hmm. So there you go. I don't There's know. There's a lot going on there. I think she found a girlfriend in prison. I think that's it. Sounds that like about. it. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like it. And you know what? Good for her. She found somebody. Yeah, um, of I think there may have been some code, some coding going on there. But despite the number of felonies that Burma was alleged to have participated in, she was released after a relatively short prison term of eight years, you know. Having been originally sentenced 30, this is a pretty significant cut. And unlike many other notorious criminals, however, Burma seemed to literally vanish from the world for a time. Maybe it was the timing. Her release was right around December 1st, 1941, right around the time the whole world was caught up in World War II. So with looming military tensions rising around the world, the media had bigger fish to fry. So perhaps people weren't paying much attention to her release, and there just wasn't that much interest on reporting where she landed. There were later reports that emerged showing that she quietly made her way to San Francisco, where she ended up somehow working for a very flashy developer, lawyer, and investor named Edmund Hersher. And eventually she landed in a second marriage to a structural engineer named Alfred Diamond. Very interesting to think about this because Mm. she's going to prison really about age 20, if even that, if all this happened. She's only in eight years. So she's coming out, you know, still a relatively young woman. Yeah, she can make a life for herself. Yeah. And now she's married a structural engineer. She's definitely traveling in better circles than she did before. And her name is now Burma Diamonds. Oh, (laughs) my God. Yes, that's a that would make a great drag name. (laughs) That's perfect. Or a stripper name, a Burma Burma (laughs) Diamonds. I love it. They eventually pack up and move to Washington State. And while she had initially taken a really quiet route regarding her reputation and just focused on creating a life in Northern California, something must have happened because she was now emerging fully back into public life. And in the 50s, she desperately and very unsuccessfully tried to get a pardon from the state of California. Very interesting to find out this. Why that much time later would she be seeking a pardon? Why was it so important to her? I don't know. I mean, you know, it could be just with age and maturity and, you know, the point that maybe she wanted to sort of clear her name in a sense, but I don't know, unless, you know, you talk about her going back into the public life, I guess you're saying like she went back, really just put herself out there to try and get this pardon again. She wasn't trying to do anything becoming a celebrity or anything. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. That we know of. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, perhaps it was that she felt that she had paid her dues and, you know, she was fully rehabilitated, now functioning as a fully engaged citizen, just sort of deserving of a reclaimed reputation. And despite being driven by the fire of reclaiming herself, Burma was struggling with some demons. As her drinking continued to increase, it developed into a significant alcoholism. And in 1962, Burma passed away due to complications from the disease, leaving behind behind many unanswered questions. So as we said, you know, kind of at the top, I think in this case, it's a little difficult to apply the research of spree killers. So this most recently comes from the research by Dr. Kathleen Ramslin and former FBI agent Mark Safrick. You know, because when we look at Burma and Thomas, technically they didn't attempt to murder all their victims and the shooting victims survived in the one case. And we don't even know if that was intentional. Right. I mean, just with as trigger happy, not trigger happy, but like impulsive that Thomas was described as who knows what 
went wrong there. But if we're looking at the breakdown of motives for spree killers, spree killing couples, 22% of the couples examined in the cases that Dr. Ramslin and Mark Safrek reviewed were done for what they categorized as robbery thrill. So I thought this fit most tightly with Burma and Thomas and their crime spree. So in the robbery thrill category, these crimes were described as a result of desperation and senselessness, especially in the cases where there had been previous robberies, but then the couple just killed someone without even robbing them. And typically these offenses were marked by lots of excessive violence and multiple weapons were used. The perpetrators were constantly on the move and behaviors were not very predictive all over the place, really made making it tough for law enforcement to connect the dots, maybe on who they are or that these cases are even related, and then subsequently to intervene. And just a, another side note on this, with this category in particular, these perpetrators had really low suicide rates in this category. Mm. So, you know, you know, I can't remember exactly if that included like suicide by cop type stuff, because I don't know, do we consider sort of going out in a blaze of glory suicide by cop? I I would say yes now. We'd probably consider it that. I think the motivation would probably be different. But then is our understanding of Blaze of Glory something that's been perpetrated by fictional representations mm. such as movies, televisions, film noir? It's hard to tell. I mean, like we know now, I mean, today, suicide by cop is a phenomenon that's driven by a number of other factors that, sure. you know, are not Blaze of Glory by any means, at, at least in my experience and, and, and not in the research that we have now. Yeah, I guess. Um, I would, you know, there's suicidal people who want, can't exactly. do it themselves that then, you know, try to get the cops to kill them. But then there's the typical like, okay, it's either I die or I go back to prison and I'm not going back to prison sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, that does occur. That mm -hmm. certainly does occur. My experience is that many times it is a significant level of mental health issues, as well as some people with very sort of concrete thinking about that the means to the end is that if I get killed by the cops, then my family can sue and they'll make a lot of money. Oof. I've heard that several times in interviews. A lot of, a lot of a forethought. Up. Right. And, but just not really, it's interesting sitting with those people and talking to them and there's not a lot of malice expressed at the time. Time, it yeah. was just to them, it seemed really reasonable, despite the fact that it would be likely not just their lives that were lost, it would impact other lives as well mm -hmm. as brooding careers, all sorts of stuff. But mm. anyway, we're digressing. We could yes. do a whole <laughs> show on that. Let's talk about some clinical considerations. It's really tough to kind of create any kind of profile about Burma that really has some legit psychological understanding of her motives, of her and of Thomas, because we don't have a lot other than just sort of pretty cut and dried information on their backgrounds and who knows how accurate those things are. We don't have anything on their developmental histories other than Burma's brain injury and Tom's, you know, military family history. But we do know how they met. We do know what kind of got them started, who seemed to be the dominant personality in this. But there are significant factors that are curious to Dr. Shiloh and I that I yeah. think are playing a role here. Number one for me was this intense and immediate emotional relationship with an individual who has really strong criminogenic factors and a violent background. So generally speaking, couples who commit crimes together have what is termed a quote unquote shared criminal mindset. That means that they are likely to share similar values, beliefs, and criminal tendencies that then lead them to be more inclined to commit crimes together. So an intense emotional relationship can reinforce each other's criminal behaviors. And that shared mindset can create what would otherwise be an uncommon acceptance of criminal behavior. Basically, yeah. it's a echo chamber of disinhibition that the sure. two share together. And that makes it easier for couples to collaborate in the planning and the executing of unlawful acts. In developing an intense but faux sense of immediate intimacy, these individuals who have this strong emotional bond and this weirdly high but faux level of trust trust yeah. are more likely to be willing to engage in these criminal acts together. The bond just creates this completely unrealized sense of safety, as well as that disinhibition that I've spoken about several times. Mm -hmm. And then each criminal success only tends to reinforce that type of behavior. So Burma may not have started off that way, but certainly it seems like she got sucked into that jet stream pretty intensely. Yeah, it's the fact is like that they 
got together so quickly. That's the really interesting part. Like, what was it? Because I don't know, like, how charming was he? You don't see the guy with one eye at the jazz club and you're like, oh, hey, let me like snuggle up to that. But like, what was his personality like? That would be so interesting to know. Or did he size her up as the perfect co-conspirator because he needed a getaway driver? Right. And then, you know, you're going to talk a little bit about brain trauma. Was there an injury or did she have a makeup that basically manifested in her as someone who was in need of higher levels of stimulation? Mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm. completely a possibility. Yeah, Yeah. So there's also this notion of you know, some substance abuse with Burma. And during the trial, her defense attorney asserted that Thomas had supplied and even forced her to use narcotics. Not a lot of evidence, again, in our research to support it. And it seems a little bit desperate, like let's throw everything in the kitchen sink at it. But, you know, I think it's interesting to look at would he, if he was a drug user himself, okay, I could see her dabbling or trying that, but how, I don't know, it does seem a little druggy, like a crime spree, right? Like this, just like willy nilly. It does seem a little coked out. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, there's, there's not a lot to go here, but I think if it was true and accurate, that would be something that even in her rehabilitation would play a strong factor and maybe, you know, work towards her getting that reduced sentence. And in the vein of all of what we talked about so far, was there this coercive control? going on between them. So we kind of look at codependence and the influences here. Again, you know, how did this ebb and flow with them? We just don't know a lot. But we do know that when one partner's influence or coercion may lead the other person to partner with them, and that could result in criminal activities. So that can be done through direct pressure, manipulation, or emotional ties that make it difficult to refuse essentially involvement. But I really see that happening over a long period of time where this there's like this chiseling away yeah great observation they, this doesn't fit the time frame no and then yes of course so we have the the issue of the the history of the head trauma here so you know certainly this can be something of a red herring head trauma has been identified as a potential factor associated with increased predispositions for violent behavior and significant damage to the brain structure and function, particularly the temple and front of the head areas where the frontal lobes can disrupt neural pathways responsible for regulating things like emotions and impulse control and decision-making processes. You know, again, we don't know what portion of her head was damaged or portion of her brain was impacted. But when we do see that, it's in those areas specifically. There are several studies that have explored this connection and found that certain types of brain injuries, particularly those affecting the prefrontal cortex and limbic systems are more strongly associated with aggressive behavior. I don't know that I would say her behavior is terribly aggressive. It doesn't seem like it. We don't even have like... Again, like, let's put the laughing aside. We don't have her like yelling things at them or even telling them like, hurry up or, you know, there's, yeah, I just, I don't get that. But these brain regions that I'm talking about play a crucial role in regulating just general things like emotions and in impulse control again, and, and your actions and just modulating social behavior in general. And up until this period of a handful of weeks, don't see any of that with her. Again, though, not all individuals who experience head trauma will display violent tendencies. Tendencies. I think we just want to reiterate that clearly as the development of violent behavior is influenced by various factors, such as all the things we've covered in 100 and almost 50 episodes, you know, genetics, right. environmental influences and individual susceptibility. So we just don't know historically if Burma exhibited any of these symptoms prior to meeting Thomas. Certainly, it's easy to see her romance and quick marriage as impulsive, but There are other factors that could have influenced that. We just don't know. Lost to history. Great story, though. And thanks for picking the subject. It's fascinating to me as you were looking through, because, of course, with with shows like this, we always want to give certainly a shout out if there's a good or bad or any media presentation or uh, version of this. And you couldn't find anything. How is there not one? How is there not? How is the Bonnie and Clyde of Southern California not a movie? Like, why didn't Angelina Jolie dye her hair 25 years? 
years ago and jump on this. But I will say we've mentioned this one before as far as the idea of spree killers, natural born killers, which mm. is a fictionalized version of the spree killings of Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate is is really fascinating. I mean, Woody Harrelson, Juliette Lewis are both phenomenal actors. It's an incredibly violent film. In fact, one that Woody Harrelson to this date has a lot of reservations about doing it because mm. he felt like it was really sort of exploitive as he grew older and, and looked at it, which is certainly a legitimate perspective. I found it over the top violent, but I found it also fascinating because it was such a character exploration for these actors to engage in. But sure. yeah, it's it's pretty violent. It is. Yeah. I mean, gosh, I haven't seen it for years, but I just remember it being very haunting and creepy. It's Julia well, Lewis. Well, Julia just... Lewis is like... I know. I mean, Woody Harrelson is a great actor across the spectrum. Juliette Lewis, I would say, and I don't mean this as a criticism, she may not have like the greatest range, but what she can do is always unsettling. Totally. You know, she did. Great way to put it. If it, There's a great movie about sort of Midwestern Southern culture called August Osage County. It was mm. based on a Tracy Letts play. And I got to see the play. It was fantastic. But Juliette Lewis was brilliant casting in August Osage County because she plays... Well, I won't even give it away. I just want to encourage people. <laughs> if you want to, if you're feeling bad about your family dynamics, go watch <laughs> Juliette Lewis and Meryl Streep and Julia Roberts in August Osage County and you'll feel a lot better. Done. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Another good one. I just wrote down to maybe go back and look at Erna Janoshek's case. Yep. I um, think that's going to be the next one. She might Let's have to be put on the list and then we can round out maybe all these women that were to Hatchapi together from LA yeah, in seriously. the 1930s. All right. Well, thanks, Dr. Scott. That was fun. And to everyone listening, we just, we never can thank you guys enough for sticking with us. And we we're so glad that, you know, you enjoyed these vintage ones too. We get a lot of great feedback as well. We really do. Thanks so much. Yeah. We'll see you guys next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye-bye. Bye folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license, and you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.